Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt, and I'm here with Vern Poitras. Vern is the professor of New Testament Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. You're the author of many books, including Redeeming Reason, Redeeming Our Thinking About History, Logic, and uh, the book that we're going to be discussing today, The Miracles of Jesus. You've also written a bunch of other books, too, um, on a ton of different topics. And so before we talk about the your book, The Miracles of Jesus, I kind of want to ask, you've written on so many different topics. How did you become interested in so many different things? What Kind of what led to this multifaceted uh, writing career that you have? Yeah, yes, well, I want to say simply God gave me ideas. But, <laughs> um, you know, I don't want to appeal to the fact that that I'm special, right? A special mm-hmm. channel for God, but but I do think that He gives to to all kinds of people creative ideas, including even non Christians, and we should be grateful for that. Mm-hmm. But He's given me ideas, and they kind of boil around in me, uh, and eventually I want to uh, get to a point where I say, well. I want to share this with other people. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, but this particular book, The Miracles of Jesus, has a longer history than some of them. Mm. Because at a fairly early point, uh, well, actually, as soon as I started teaching at Westminster Theological Seminary, well, one of the things I was asked to teach was on Gospels. And uh, that's, you know, it's a regular part of the curriculum at Westminster, and so I had a section on the parables and miracles of Jesus. Mm. And uh, pretty soon I developed an elective course that was specifically on the parables and miracles, mostly actually on parables primarily, but there were a lot of of things that by analogy carried over into the miracles. And maybe it helped me that uh, the course was on both. Because the parables obviously have a depth of meaning to them. Mm. And they work by analogy, right? It's typically a fictional story about lost sheep or a lost coin or uh, uh, the vineyard that's Mm. rented out. You know, all these kinds of things that are illustrating uh, principles about the kingdom of God. Right? Jesus is saying... Kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. That's a central part of his message and of John the Baptist before him. Well, what is the meaning of that kingdom? So I was looking, he teaches a lot in parables. He uses these analogies. But I saw that in miracles, it's often something of a similar thing. That the miracles, you see, what the average person thinks of and what I thought of at an earlier point of my growing up was, oh, these are demonstrations of the power of God, which they are, right? And they're demonstrations that Jesus is whom he claims to be, that he is God, that also he's uh, the anointed Messiah of God, uh, according to his human nature, in the line of David, he is what he claims to be. Mm -hmm. Well, all that is true, but if that's all we get out of miracles, we're missing something. Uh, you take, for instance, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Well, that's really dramatic. And actually, it's built on, uh, there's an allusion to an earlier miracle by Elisha mm. in in um, in uh, Second Kings. 
chapter four, where he feeds 200 men. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a proof of his, uh, the power of the prophetic word, right? Mm-hmm. But but what Jesus does, 5,000, right? Well, <laughs> it's underlining the fact this is the prophet that was promised in the Old Testament, right? Mm-hmm. So all that is taking place. But what I did not see so quickly was the fact that the miracles are signs. Mm -hmm. So with the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6, actually, John becomes more explicit. He includes a discourse by Jesus where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And it's right after, well, the next day, after the feeding of the 5,000, and there's some allusions backward, and the people are saying, you know, Moses Mm -hmm. fed us with manna in the wilderness, and what are you doing? And... So it connects with the fact that he has shown that he can feed people with the bread, that um, physical bread, mm-hmm. but it's a sign that he himself is the real bread. I'm mm-hmm. the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, he says. <clears throat> well, mm-hmm. that to me is really nourishing. I think it's nourishing to other people too. Yeah, And so I wanted to share with other people, but also particularly with pastors and counselors, <clears throat> the potential for this kind of thing, because the miracles can illustrate vividly what people need to take to heart about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that. OK, so this is this is interesting because I grew up in the church and and miracles were kind of just an assumed like we all just kind of believe like, yeah, these miracles all make sense. Like I never really questioned it my whole life. I just was like, yeah, of course Jesus can turn water into wine or make, you know, feed 5,000 people. That, that to me is just like common sense. Of course, to non-believers and to people who don't know the gospel, don't believe in Jesus, that's, they think that's wild. They think that's crazy. Um, so you obviously in the book, you mentioned how you're coming from a perspective of like, yeah, I'm assuming that this stuff is true. The Bible is true. Um, but I just thought that was interesting because I, yeah, I, growing up, I, I never even questioned the, the validity of the miracles of Jesus. Um, and so it was interesting reading through your your book. And you mentioned just before that you had written this kind of for pastors and counselors. You want to break down why you had kind of written for those two groups of people as it relates to these miracles? Yeah, right. I think anybody can profit from understanding the Gospels better. So I don't want to leave out the ordinary person. But I did want to signal to pastors and counselors how valuable it is to to understand this analogical force. Mm. I can illustrate it with the um, cleansing of the leper in Luke 5. Uh, The story, the man who has leprosy, and he, he falls at... Jesus' feet, if you will, you can make me clean. Well, the background in the Old Testament is that mm-hmm. leprosy is a kind of symbolic analog to sin. It's an it's a actual physical disease, probably not our modern leprosy, but a variety of skin diseases. That, but, but it's used symbolically in the Old Testament as a picture of sin that excludes you from the community and excludes you from the presence of God. Mm-hmm. So, so it makes you unclean, mm. right? But, but when I read over that story, that, that's a picture 
of Jesus healing sin. And one of the ways he does it, he actually touches the leper. If you look carefully at the narrative, and I could just imagine his disciples looking on, they would be horrified because mm. that's the one thing you don't do because that would make you unclean. Well, I don't think that actually takes place in the case of Jesus. Rather, it's the reverse, right? His yeah. cleanness, so to speak, is transmitted to the leper. But that touching is a matter of identification. It would have been shocking, as I say, to the society because they are trained from, from a childhood to stay away from lepers. Hmm. And it, it's a way basically of saying we need to be pure. We need to stay away from sin, right? That's part of the symbolic lesson. Instead, Jesus identifies with the leper. Well, that's an anticipation of his crucifixion. It's in his crucifixion. He actually, it's as if he, he stretches out his hand and he puts his hand on you and on me and says, be clean because I'm taking your sin on me. I'm going to die for your mm -hmm. sin. It's just so vivid. And I think particularly then for a counselor, for instance, somebody who's dealing with, with a young woman who has a background of sexual abuse hmm. uh, or, or she's just been promiscuous, right? It's been her own fault. But sexual abuse is one of the most difficult things. And people feel dirty. They feel, hmm. I can't get beyond this sense of, of a of being disqualified from society because I've been involved in this hideous thing, even if it's not their fault, right? If they're mm -hmm. abused as a child, for example. And this this particular story struck me, you know, that could minister to a person like that because mm -hmm. it's so vivid a picture. And Jesus is saying to this person, I will, I'll make you clean, right? Mm -hmm. You just have to ask me. That doesn't mean that you have no problems, you know, uh, sure. they all live happily ever after. Well, we do <laughs> live happily ever after. And then you have a new earth. But we have, there still can be struggles. I don't want to oversimplify that. Yeah. But it's still a picture of the reality of the forgiveness of sin. Mm. And it points to the crucifixion of Christ. It unpacks beforehand some of the significance of what it meant for Jesus to identify with us, to stretch out his hand, spiritually speaking, to say, I am identifying with your sin. I'm going to take it so that you can be clean. It's mm -hmm. wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like the way that you describe, I mean, the way that you talk about it, it, it feels like the the words come off the page. And, you know, because as I read through scripture, oftentimes I find myself reading it uh, very textbook like where I'm just gaining information, but I'm not necessarily uh, feeling or in some ways experiencing the 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 real life aspect of it that Jesus this isn't just a this is written down for sure, but Jesus did touch the leper. Like that that literally yeah. happened. And I don't have as much context for that in, you know, in 2024 Western America where we don't have to deal with those types of sicknesses and things like that. So I but but it is I I like the way that you talked about that because I think it makes the it makes the scriptures realer. I, that makes sense, you know. Um, so that was that's great. So I think at one, at one point you write in your book, you said that God is a personal God, not a mechanical system. So He can also bring about exceptions to the regularities when He wishes. So I thought this was interesting. 
Um, first, I want to kind of ask, can you break that down and explain what you mean by that? Uh, obviously, you're talking about miracles, but explain what you mean by that. And then I, pr- I have a couple more follow-up questions to that. You're right. Well, we're guaranteed that the sun will come up every day. And that's not because of a mechanism mm-hmm. out there in the planets. That's mm-hmm. because God has willed it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And we can mm-hmm. count on it. That's a regularity. But the regularities we kind of take for granted is thinking, you know, it, it's just going to happen mm-hmm. and we don't really have to thank anybody for it. But, right. but it's God who is doing it. But he's so faithful, he's so consistent that we can kind of shrug it off. And there's another verse. It's one of my favorites to illustrate the same thing in Psalm 104, verse 14. It says he causes grass to grow for the livestock. Hmm. And, And I just picture, you know, modern biologists kind of seeing that and saying, well, wait a minute, you know, I can describe to you. I'm a specialist in botany. I can describe to you. All this stuff about how the the roots are taking up water and minerals, and and the, uh, the the plant system is taking in carbon dioxide, and there's all this stuff going on in the cell. That's what plant growth is about. Mm. And I would go back to him and saying, "Yeah, you're describing how God does. <laughs> and it's so consistent that you can count on it. <laughs> so God does not compete." with some kind of mechanism, Mm. but it's a demonstration of his faithfulness. Mm. But because he's personal, there can be exceptions. So Mm. I use the example of some artificial thing, completely artificial, I admit, where some scientist sets himself up in a tent in our front yard and watches our family life, right? Mm. Which which wouldn't, we wouldn't actually allow. <laughs> but he's, he's watching this, and he thinks he's got the clue. I have a new scientific law, namely that the Poitras family wake up every day between 7 and 7.30. This is a scientific law, no exceptions, hmm. right? And it goes on for years, maybe. And then one day, we turn on the lights at 5 a.m., and he's freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> this can't happen. This is not in accord with scientific law. But what he doesn't know is that we have to make an early plane mm-hmm. that very day. And so we set alarm. We're persons, right? So we can break out of the routine. So God has a routine. And it's very good that he does because it means there is regularities. And, you know, we can count on those things in the sun rising and that's the course of the seasons he guarantees that actually after noah's flood uh, he makes it plain i'm in charge of all those things but there can be exceptions because he's personal right for personal purposes and the resurrection of christ is one of those you know you mentioned earlier well you know people who don't believe in god at all they, they would just say oh that's ridiculous right we know that people don't rise from the dead Mm-hmm. And my response would partly be, well, the people in the first century A.D. also knew just as well as you do that people don't rise from the dead. They knew that. But because they believed in God, they also understood that, that God could do something exceptional. 
Hmm. It's not irrational, right? It's not a kind of surrogate. It's not just a weird chance thing, but it's in accord with purposes that God had actually planned and prophesied all the way down back from early in the Old Testament. Hmm. So it makes sense. And of course, it's the first fruits of the harvest of the dead. It's because Jesus is raised that we expect to have new resurrection bodies mm-hmm. in for the future. Sure. Mm-hmm. His resurrection is based as for ours. It makes perfect sense within a world in which God has plans that, that are mm-hmm. redemptive, mm-hmm. right? So this is, it's the opposite of an irrationality. It would mm-hmm. have been a marvel if Jesus had not risen from the dead because this, this was a fulfillment of what God had already planned. Of course, it's going to happen. Of course, the disciples didn't realize that, right? Yeah. Right. They are all discouraged. They are, don't understand. And Jesus rebukes them, right? Don't you understand that it was necessary to Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead? He tells them in Luke mm-hmm. 24 because he understands. And afterward, he's explained it. Then they understand and they are ready to believe well, also because he appeared to them, but blessed mm. are those who have not seen and yet believe, right? Mm. They, that it's not a matter of seeing only, but a matter of understanding God and who he is and what his purposes are. Yeah, Then it right. makes sense. It's not hard to believe in the resurrection. Mm. If God illumines your, your eyes to see the significance of what he's doing. Similarly with the miracles, right? Particularly if they're miracles of the kingdom, if they're kind of... of uh, pictorial illustrations of the meaning of some aspect of the kingdom of God. If they're some, they're fulfilled, I believe, in the crucifixion and resurrection over and over again, like the the leper, cleansing of the leper, right? Mm -hmm. Well, Jesus does that cleansing by dying and rising again. Or the bread of life, he offers his own body, his flesh and blood to us to eat and drink. That's John 6, right? As he explains and where's the point at which he does that? It's in his death and resurrection. So, so you know, things, it, if we understand what the scriptures are teaching, then the miracles fit right in. Mm. They are exceptions in terms of kind of normal patterns, mm. right? But they're not exceptions in terms of violating the plan of God. They're exact fulfillments of the plan of God. Okay, this is interesting. Um because as I was thinking through this concept, as I was reading your book, I was thinking about how um, I, I wonder if, and I kind of walk with me through this because I'm trying to still think through it as I even talk to you right now, but that it seems like the irregularities or or the regularities of our world um, in some ways are a result of sin. And so like my question about the miracles would be, are Christ's miracles a... Uh, a glimpse into the the kingdom of God in the sense that they we think that they're irregularities because we're blinded by sin and they actually are regularities because they're in consistency with God's never changing character or um say or is it like is so let's do you want to See, I'm having a hard time breaking this down. Do you, does that, did that make sense? Is that kind of what Yeah, it does. And and I think um, I want to respond with a both and. Sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because the, if you think of the miracles in the Gospels, over and over again, they're related to the kingdom of God. And the mm. kingdom of God that 
terminology in the Gospels is not about the fact God rules over the whole world, which he does. Mm -hmm. It's about the, the reign of salvation, the exertion mm -hmm. of the power of God in achieving the salvation of, of all his people through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's focused. Mm. Uh, and and that kingdom of God focus is a redemptive focus. It's because the things have gone wrong with the world. Christ would mm. never have had to become incarnate, would never have had to die if it hadn't been for sin. Mm. Right? And, and the touching of the leper. Well, why is the leper leprous? Right? Mm. Uh, there wouldn't have been that kind of disease afflicting human beings apart from the fall. Uh, that's mm -hmm. an inference, but it, it makes sense. So, so, and if it's a symbol for sin, then it's because of sin that that whole miracle is mm -hmm. displayed. So over and over again, the miracles are oriented to redemption. And you would, I think you could say then, no, they would never have taken place in the way that they do except for the fact that our world has sin in it and then the disorders, right? The sickness, mm -hmm. disease, death, other things come in. And that's why the miracles of the Gospels are there. Mm -hmm. Well, what about the miracles of creation? Right now, that's right. before there is sin. Right. And there are discontinuities, I believe, when, God, when it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a miracle, right? It's mm -hmm. out of the ordinary. It's the only time it ever happened. Yeah. <laughs> it only right. happened once by the nature of the thing. But of course, it's consistent in the mind of God with everything that comes afterwards, right? Mm -hmm. And so is the creation of light. So there's a moment when God first brings the light to shine, mm -hmm. right? So that's, that's different from all of the subsequent instances that we see day by day. Mm. But of course, it's setting in motion something where God does plan that there would be a regular sequence of night and day. So mm. it's both there is a rational plan mm -hmm. that encompasses everything. And there are these special things mm. that aren't just everywhere, that aren't just repeated all the time, but that are integral to achieving the plan. The days of creation, all the works there at one end, and then the days of, you might say the days, the, the time of the consummation of the new heaven, the new earth. Even if human beings had not fallen, now it's not so clear in the Bible, but it looks like there would have been a filling of the earth and a subduing of the earth, and there would have come a time when the human task was complete, and then there would have been some kind of transition into mm -hmm. a new heaven and new earth, even without sin. Now it makes a difference, right? Because now we have to deal with sin and addition and we have to deal with the work of Christ to overcome sin. But the point is that there would have been some kind of extraordinary transition, mm -hmm. looks like, even apart from sin. So, so I guess my answer is it's not, it's not so one-dimensional, right? Mm -hmm. you, that you say, well, all miracles have to do X, Y, Z. But there is one coherent plan of God. Mm -hmm. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's from Isaiah 46, uh, 10 and 11. Uh, a wonderful passage 
if we understand that God is a personal God who cares for us, so that the big picture there is complementary to the little picture of saying that the hairs of your head are all numbered. God mm -hmm. cares about the intimate details uh, as well as the big picture of history. And nobody mm -hmm. else can do that if you think about right. it, right? We, right. Uh, we have a tendency in our time, you know, with all the secular theories that you're just caught in in a in a uh, a universe that nobody is controlling, mm -hmm. right? And it's a grim and depressing right. picture. And if that, right. that were true, but it isn't true. Yeah, mm -hmm. we have a heavenly father. Yeah, it's interesting because I think like the one of the obviously one of the biggest miracles in the Bible is the incarnation of Christ, and it's an yeah. interesting thing because it's in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, the Word was God. So that's kind of Christ's nature as uh, outside of the human nature that he takes on, and then in the incarnation he takes on a new nature, fully with his old nature, which n none of the other of the Trinity do that, which I, they do and, and don't in some capacity, um, which is a really, that's so like mind boggling and mysterious to me because there is a fact of the never changing constancy of God's character and Christ as well. And yet at that point in history, Christ takes on the flesh. He takes on, he takes on human, human nature. How, I guess, is that kind of just, do theologians kind of mark that up to kind of one of the, one of the major faith-based mysteries of Christianity? Um, Cause there's an aspect of constancy in God's character. And then there's the aspect of, okay, well, Jesus's character in some ways changes and that he takes a new aspect on. Right. And so how do, mm -hmm. how, is, how do you guys talk, how do theologians talk about that? Yeah, well, it is a mystery. You know, the, yeah. the theologians who know their stuff are going to admit <laughs> that it's a mystery. <laughs> but you can say, mm -hmm. oh, just Jesus is one person with two natures, right? Which is mysterious. How can that be? We can't picture it because we are we are human, right? Yeah, we have right. only one human nature. You can't mm -hmm. picture it. But one uh, one person, two natures. With respect to his divine nature, there's no change, as you say. God remains God forever. Mm -hmm. With respect to human nature, there are plenty of changes. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That's there in Luke yeah. 2. Right. Just wow. blatantly saying, <laughs> look at these changes with respect to the human nature, right? Mm. Because he's a boy. He's growing. Yeah. So it, we have both of those things together in I think an indissolvable mystery. Mm -hmm. No, for sure, and that's obviously. I think that's part of putting our faith in Christ is putting our faith into the to the fact that fact uh, of Christ's nature and who He is, and and also being okay with not fully understanding. And it seems it's otherworldly, it's other dimensional. You know, we're not going to understand that yet. Um, but that's yeah, it's super interesting. It's kind of a it's kind of a, a crazy thing to think about. You know. Um, so you also write uh, in your book that you said the Gospel of John characteristically uses the word "sign" rather than other words like "miracle" and "wonder." It thereby indicates that the miracles have permanent meanings. They signify truths concerning God, concerning Christ, and concerning the salvation He has brought. Um, can you kind of tell us the difference between a sign, a miracle, and a wonder? Yeah. Well. You're referring to the very same things, right? Mm -hmm. The same events. But mm -hmm. you're looking at them in three different ways. 
in sign, you're emphasizing the fact that there's meaning. And wonder, you're emphasizing the fact that this is something that draws people's intention, attention because it's so unusual, it's so striking, it's so out of the ordinary. And with miracle, the main word actually underlying it in Greek is dynamis in the plural, works of power. Mm. So it's a manifestation of the power of God. Well, all those three are there. But in John, there's more attention than in the other three Gospels to the meanings you know, we talked about the bread of life, you see, right? Mm. The feeding of the 5,000 is set up, and then Jesus explains that I am the bread of life. Mm-hmm. So there's the, the sign of the feeding of 5,000 is a sign of the fact that Jesus is himself the bread of life. Well, take the healing of the man blind from birth in John 9. As you get into that, near the end of the chapter, He says, I've come into the world that those who are blind may see and that those who see may become blind. The Pharisee says, are we also blind? Well, he's talking about a spiritual blindness. Yeah, right. And he says, yeah, if you were, if you say, if you, how does it go? If you say you were blind, you have no guilt. But now that you say, we see your guilt remains. Because they think they're in charge, right? They think they understand religiously, the meaning of the things. And they're blinded to the significance mm. that Jesus is the light of the world, right? That's the one yeah. of the motifs in that very passage. I am the light of the world is shown by the fact that he heals this man who's blind from birth, interestingly, right? Mm. So it's like a new birth, right? He's, right? he's been blind his whole life. We've been trapped in sin our whole life. So there's things like that. And then the raising of Lazarus. In that context, Jesus says to to Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Hmm. So he, he, it's not simply, oh, yeah, it's a wonderful thing to, to raise somebody from the dead, right? Hmm. Well, Jesus is using it to make a point about himself. Hmm. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though we die, yet shall he lives, right? So that's hmm. anticipating his own resurrection and belief in him. And saying, you can have eternal life now. Mm. Of course, you will die physically, but the real life is life in communion with God. So Jesus, it's all this significance as he explains the meaning of his raising Lazarus. We go through these signs in the Gospel of John. Some of them more than others are explained, but all of them have this significance. So actually, in my book, I start with the signs in the Gospel of John, because it's easier to see. There's more explicit teaching in John. But then you make a transition, and I do the Gospel of Matthew, and I go through the miracles yeah. of Matthew, as you know, having read the book. And and equipped with the insights from John, then you're ready to say, you know, the miracles in Matthew do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And Matthew has some hints, not as explicit, not as well as thoroughly worked out <clears throat> as John, but he has hints of the same thing. He has the story, for instance, of the feeding of the 5,000. He has some stories of blind people being healed. Mm-hmm. 
It's okay. So uh, as, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about, okay, so you're talking about perspectives on the same events, having, uh, using different words to describe what's happening. Jesus is doing a miracle. It's a sign. It's a wonder. Um, and John, I remember at the, at the end of the gospel of John, John kind of talks about how he had wrote, written these things so that we may believe that Jesus is the son of God. So, so the point of, of the miracles, the sign there, the, you're saying the reason John is using the word signs is to point towards, okay, Jesus is, he is who he says he is. These are signs that are proving who Jesus is saying that he is, right? They are that, but also they illustrate by analogy who he is. Right, right. right. Because we talked about the fact, okay, nobody else could, as the blind man says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Yeah. He's he's absolutely, you know, nailed it. So, of course, they are signs in that way. But they are also signs in the sense of the feeding of the 5,000 is a picture that Jesus is the bread of life who feeds us with his own flesh as the yeah. nourishment that gives us eternal life. So it's, and the raising of Lazarus similar and the, you know, the healing of the blind man, we all need to be healed of spiritual blindness. Mm-hmm. And the way that healing comes focally is by looking at the crucifixion and the resurrection and having our eyes open to what yeah. is going on. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, for example, <clears throat> Uh, that um, the, the, uh, the, the Son of Man, as, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, mm-hmm. so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So, so it's the lifting up is the lifting up on the cross. Mm-hmm. So it's like the serpent, the bronze serpent, right? It was a cursed thing, right? So right, you look right. on this cursed thing and Jesus mm-hmm. undergoing a curse. That's what gives you eternal life. Well, it's looking pretty, pretty, you you can look at Jesus throughout the Gospels, but especially in the crucifixion and the resurrection. Of course, evangelical pastors and theologians have understood this, that the the whole of Jesus' earthly life is relevant to us, but especially his death and resurrection, right? Mm -hmm. That's the climax of everything else. But we haven't always noticed is that all the rest of his earthly life is already building up to that and it's already mounting these analogical themes that are fully worked out in the crucifixion and the resurrection. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so do you do you view, I can't remember if you said this in the book, but do you view the casting out of demons? Is that Do you view that as like a miracle are we supposed to look at those as miracles or as more of Christ asserting his his dominance and authority over the spiritual realm or, or over demons and, and the devil? How, I mean, those, yeah, they can wait, cross wait. over to like right, Venn both and, both and. Yeah, both and. <laughs> Let's go for it. Okay. Uh, so, but, yeah, go but ahead. That's, again, a good illustration because uh, we're all slaves in the realm of darkness before we're enlivened and come to Christ. First uh, yeah. John 5, uh, we know that we are of God's family while the whole world lies in the realm of the evil one. Mm-hmm. So there is, I, I do believe there is such a thing as specific d- demon oppression and demon possession yeah. of an intense kind, such as we see in the Gospels. 
I'm not leveling everything. But what that signifies is what happened. What it's pointing forward to is the defeat of the devil in the crucifixion and the resurrection, which is very plain in the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, now is the the ruler of this world cast out. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he's thinking of his crucifixion and resurrection. And, and in Hebrews 2, it says something similar, that, 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 the, um, that Christ's uh, defeat of death is also the defeat of the Satan who held us captive through fear of death. Right, right. So, so and we don't often think in terms of this, uh, at least I say we, I think many evangelicals, or some who do, although sometimes in exaggerated and distorted way, but... Every you know everything is a demon, right? But <laughs> yeah, every right. problem is a demon. But yeah. there are demons are real, mm-hmm. and and one of the aspects of Jesus' work, it's a comprehensive redemption, right? And one of the aspects has to be that we're freed from the dominion of Satan, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that's where we were uh, before he he rescued us. Yeah, and, uh, right. and again, that's pictured, well, now in the Old Testament, right? The redemption of Egypt, people were physically slaves, mm-hmm. Israelites, physically slaves in Egypt. But the deeper slavery is slavery to sin and death. Mm-hmm. And that's the equivalent to being in the realm of darkness. It's under the dominion of Satan. Well, it's interesting. I've, you know, I've, I've tried that tactic on my wife, uh, saying the reason the dishes aren't done and the, in the bedroom isn't clean is because it's demons. And she just said it was a result of my sin, you know, so uh, I've tried it. <laughs> um, no, no, no. It, can be, it can be an excuse, but, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think the deeper problems are that uh, American Christians need to be more aware of the fact that we are in a spiritual war. My yeah, wife sure. was a missionary in Taiwan before we were married. Wow. Taiwan, there are many good things about Taiwan and its culture, but it's full of idolatry, gross idolatry. There are mm. temples all around, literal wow. temples with literal physical idols there who are bowed down to and offerings are presented to those idols. Now it's changing because of the influence of the West, but mm-hmm. it's there very strongly. Wow. And so she had to deal with the reality of the fact that these people are worshiping demons, in effect. They think it's spirits, yeah. right? But behind the sp- the, their uh, idea of spirits, there are demons who are keeping them in fear and in captivity. And uh, so it's real. And some of the people who go from the West in, in mission fields in other countries are not ready for it. <laughs> just yeah, they they think, oh, you know, it's all about uh, just uh, uh, proclaiming a gospel of deliverance from sin and guilt. Well, yeah, we need to be delivered from sin and guilt, but we need to be delivered from from the power of evil spirits. For and sure, that is, right. that is a terrible uh, thing to see in some countries of the world. That people are captive. And, you know, it can take the form of these cases of literal idols and literal temples. Mm. But we have false religions now that are coming in in the United States as well. New Age religion and Mm -hmm. some aspects of woke culture. I don't want to get into that. But but it becomes a kind of false religion. People are Mm -hmm. just as committed as they are, as they were to any of the traditional religions. 
Yeah, well, okay, so I'm interested to get your perspective on this because, um, well, the reason I asked about the demons was that there's this there's that story in the Bible where Jesus casts out the legion of demons uh, mm. from the guy, and and then uh, the demons are like, well, you know, don't kill us, just send us into the pigs. And Jesus is like, all right, you, you can go to the pigs. And then they go to the pigs, 2,000 pigs then go into the river or the lake or something, they all die. And I remember hearing somebody preach on that or read something about how that basically just like destroyed a particular aspect of that city's economy because yeah. that's 2000 pigs that's just going into that are dead. And, um, you know, what, what was going on there? Like, what was, what was a sign there? Why, why did he do that? Yeah. Well, there's always going to be mysteries, right? And many times sure. God, even in, in one person's life in modern times, Think bad things happen, good things happen, and and he never explains, right? right? You never get the answer. Sometimes, yeah. years later, maybe you can see a purpose, but, but you can't guarantee that you can know. But mm -hmm. even in the Bible, there are some things that are explained and some things not. It isn't explained, oh, yeah. you know, well, why didn't he say, you know, no, this will destroy the pigs. The pigs are created animals, right? I'm not going <laughs> to let you do that. But... But actually, the thing is a vivid becomes a vivid, vivid illustration because what what happens is that demons are destructive. Yeah, right? they're not good for us. <laughs> they yeah. destroyed practically destroyed this person, or it was actually two people according to Matthew. Oh, they just they became almost subhuman, right? They're yeah, wearing right. no clothes. They're living in the tombs. They're in place of death. It just appalling that how much the image of God has been been defaced mm. in these two. So they're destructive there. They go into pigs, the first thing they do, whether it's intentional or not, the pigs get destroyed. And where do they get destroyed to? They get destroyed to what I would say the abyss. Mm. Well, not the final abyss, right? Which was be the abyss of the lake of fire, right, right where right. Satan is due to mm -hmm. end up. But it's a picture mm -hmm. of, the, it's a foretaste of that final destruction. How appropriate. Mm -hmm. Because they get, you know, it's, they, yeah, they're, right, right. Right in, they're drowned in the lake, which is like an abyss. It's, you know, it's like, it's the lowest part of things and there's nothing but death there. Mm -hmm. You can't live there. So unless you're fish, right? But the point is, you know, you got to look at it symbolically, right? Yeah, for sure. Think for of sure. all the qualifications. Right. So I I can look at that story and with these principles of analogy and saying this has got a picture of the kingdom of God. Mm. Yeah, it's a picture of the aspect of the kingdom that we need to take in the West, particularly, we need to take very seriously. Mm. Rather than shrug off, oh yeah, you know we're no longer having a demon deal with demons. Yeah. I think the demons quieted down in the United States, partly because the United States was such a Christian-influenced country, right? But sure. if you lose that, then they're going to find ways to come back. Right. 
Yeah, no, I a hundred percent. I a hundred percent agree. I think that there's, and I think that there's, I don't, I've, I've been, I've gone back and forth on, on, it's really sometimes hard to figure out whether or not something is a result of the flesh of sin or of demonic influence. It's really, sometimes it can be really difficult to figure out, make those distinctions, uh, especially as it relates in the West, where I think a lot of the spiritual influence is coming from secular philosophies rather than explicitly uh religious idols or things like that um you know i think of marxism darwinism expressive individualism postmodernism all of these things that have helped helped kind of destroy the western western philosophy and judeo-christian values um it's it's an interesting thing because i don't want to just say, oh, this is all demonic influence, because I think that that then takes the responsibility off of the people who have helped create these things, uh, these ideas, and the people who have bought into them. But then on the other hand, the, some of these ideas are, are hor- they're so horrific that you wonder, okay, what's the influence there? I mean, the screw tape letters are helpful, uh, yeah. Lewis's book, in kind of discussing some of that. But I, do you have any thoughts on that? Yes. Well, of course, there's much that's mysterious. And uh, mm-hmm. at Romans 16, near the end, the Apostle Paul says, Be experts in goodness and sympathize in evil, and the mm-hmm. God of peace will soon crush Satan beneath your feet. We know certain things from the Bible itself about the realm of evil. Yeah. But but I think he's deliberately, God is deliberately not giving us huge mm-hmm. amounts. We don't We don't want to immerse ourselves. Yeah, that kind of thing. But, um, you know, all that is good, all that is true, all that is just and pure, that's what you should be thinking yeah. about, Philippians right. 4. So there's a sense of proportion. On the other hand, I think it's, again, a both and kind of thing. You can mm-hmm. see it in the book of Job. These disasters come on Job. Well, there are human agents, mm. Sabians, Chaldeans. They're, they're natural agents, uh, uh, lightning and and wind. Uh, but Satan also is behind it. Well, we typically are not given, the veil, as it were, is not pulled back. We typically don't know mm. the extra information that we're given in the case of Job 1 to 2. But we should be content with feeling, uh, as Job says, God is, given God is taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. He's, he sees the hand of God. He knows that God is in charge. Uh, and of course, the whole story makes that clear. Satan is on a leash, right? He can't. Yeah, right. He has to get permission from God. It's just <laughs> an absurd story in some ways. You know? Yeah. It's very, very humiliating to Satan. Yeah. Because he, he, he can't do anything right. except what God permits. That's well, that's what we we need to keep, you know, uppermost in our minds. Mm. But but my point would be that that demons are real and that, spiritual war is real but the the way we combat that is not through some kind of extra biblical knowledge right of all kinds of techniques special formulas of exorcism and on and on but it's the gospel it's it's the word of truth Mm. that that we bring and that you know god is able we pray to god not that we have our power right. in ourselves. We yeah. pray to God that people will be delivered mm-hmm. from the captivity of deceit of various kinds, right? And so we don't need to know the details of, well, just how 
did this person get into the situation mm -hmm. they're in? <clears throat> but it's both human guilt and it's demonic deceit. For sure. Yeah, because because the, we have indications in the New Testament. We don't need to go into the detail here, but we have indications that basically all idolatry has <laughs> demons behind it. That's yeah. 1 Corinthians 10. So, so you see modern idolatries, yeah, they have demons behind it, but it doesn't take away from the guilt of the human ideas and the distortions of the truth yeah. uh, that are human, uh, humanly generated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been reading through, I've, I mentioned this on this podcast before, but I've been reading through uh, all J.I. Packer's books, as many as I possibly can. I mean, he's a smart guy and, and I've written through, read through, uh, read through a couple of them and I've, you know, I love him. I love his writing. I just love how straightforward and logical he is, but he also, he's focuses so much on holiness, godliness, uh, mm -hmm. sanctification. And, um, and though, like though he's kind of like, these are the answers to the problem. Like the answer isn't to try to figure out the complexities or disordered uh, nature and ca chaos of sin, but it's to just follow Christ and becoming more like him. I think, I mean, I, yeah. So to what you just said, yeah, it's the gospel, it's godliness, it's holiness. And, and that's the the way to go, right? So, um, so yeah, you so you kind of I kind of want to talk a little bit more about the the deity, the humanity, and the deity of Christ. Um, is it you talk about Christ's miracles point towards the reality of two mysterious natures of Jesus? Obviously, his humanity and his deity. When Jesus performs miracles as a human, he performs them similarly to the prophets of the Old Testament. Um, and so this was interesting because in my understanding, and I might be wrong about this, uh that it feels like it seemed like in the old testament the miracles performed were were performed kind of externally upon people from god like it when when uh, i think of when moses kind of t puts his hand into his cloak and pulls it out and god's like showing you know he's got was it, did he have leprosy or he had some sort of disease on his hand that it felt like that was like an external miracle that God was performing on him rather than necessarily through him. Now there's other miracles that have been performed through people. Uh, but how, so my question would be if Jesus is fully man and fully God, um, then, then the miracles wouldn't necessarily be coming externally because it's he is God, you know. He he's it would be coming from within him. How does that work? Uh, how does miracles proceeding from Christ work with the the two natures of the the deity and the humanity of Christ? Another mm. kind of wild, a little out there question, but uh, I I'm interested in this. This is kind of some of, some of the stuff I was thinking about while I was reading your book. So mm. I'm interested in hearing what you yeah. have to say. Well. It's a mystery. <laughs> yeah, I no. mean, you know, beyond a certain minimum, you, and you yeah. can't divide up Christ, right? It, there are sure. two natures, but there's one person. So it's yeah. one person who does the miracles. But uh, but if you, we go back to the, you know, Jesus is the final prophet. Let's start with Hebrews, right? Of, yeah. In, in many and varied fashion, he spoke to our fathers through the prophets. And this, the final is he has spoken to us in the Son. So there's this climax sense. So if you look at the prophets in the Old Testament. They are human. They are not divine. They are not supermen. They are not X-men. They are not people that with innate um, extra powers. They're mm. just people. Right. Right? Right. They're ordinary human beings. So in that sense, all the power belongs to God. And, and I'm sure if we interviewed one of those prophets, he would be 
quick to confirm yeah, that and right. say, it's not me. Mm-hmm. The whole point is God has given me a word and that word has divine power. Yeah. And uh, so, so, okay, so that's the Old Testament prophets. But with respect to Jesus, he's unique in the two natures, but the human nature is fully human. Mm. So he got tired. He was tired. He sat down beside the well at the, the Jacob's well in yeah. Samaria and in John 4. He was tired. He was thirsty. That's real. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. And and uh, as a, according to his human nature, he did not have power to pull the water up from the bottom of the well. Yeah. He was like us. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. was, you know, he, he had normal human powers with respect to his human nature. But then you say, well, well what about the divine nature? Of course, then <laughs> he's ruler over the entire universe, including the water at the bottom of the well. Yeah. So, so uh, over and over again, I think we're going to be confronted with things that we do not fully understand, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. here he has infinite power with respect to his divine nature. Mm-hmm. And he has the normal powers of a human being. And let's not exaggerate that because he was fully human, right? That's important, sure. actually. That he's fully identified with us without sin. And Hebrews makes that point as well. Yeah. So that he's not an X-man, right? Who can, you know, <laughs> has these, I don't know, the, you know, supernatural. He has these yeah. claws like the yeah, Wolverine. The or, you right. know, he has something extra. It's yeah. not really human. It's part Wolverine or whatever it is, right? Yeah, it's, right. it's some, uh, it's some DNA uh, modification. And yeah, yeah. Some, it's some mutation. He's a right, mutant. Right. No, he's yeah. fully human, right. right? So, but that goes together with his being fully divine, and that's mm. now that's. But I do think you know you look at these figures in the yeah. comics, and actually they are distorted imitations of Christ because everybody longs for redemption and everybody mm-hmm. knows at some level of instinct, mm-hmm. it has to be somebody with enormous, basically divine power because the the situation is so bad. It has to yeah. be somebody with divine power and also somebody who is near to us, who can identify mm-hmm. with us. So Superman is Superman and Clark Kent. Right. Right. So, so right. he's close. It, you know, it doesn't work, right? Because even Superman is not God. Right? He's got he a kryptonite. He's got a, yeah. But he has, he's Clark Kent. And so yeah. there's, there's this element uh, that's imitating without, you know, without succeeding, right? Because Clark Kent is not actually human, right? He's, <laughs> yeah. he's actually Superman, but he looks human. Well, yeah. that's docetism. That's a heresy. Right, yeah, if you right, right, right. <laughs> so it doesn't work. Yeah. But but still, these hero figures are Christ-like figures. For sure. Uh, and uh, But my point is, you have to have both divine power and you have to have the, the, the being with us element. And Jesus, to be our high priest, has to be fully human. Yeah. And you see that in the Gospels. And you see him weary. You see him sleeping in the boat. Right? Well, yeah. Don't you care? He just doesn't know what's going on. Well, with respect to his human nature, he doesn't. Right. He is genuinely asleep. Huh. 
that's just yeah it is it is wild to think about and it's and it's you know it it's it is humbling in a lot of ways and i think that it does it is fun to talk about these things it's interesting to talk about the miracles of christ especially because it it reemphasizes the faith required to believing in jesus that there's an aspect mm-hmm. of the christian the, the, the christian religion that is that's uh, not explainable and yet that's what makes in some ways it p- worth putting faith into that if if it were so easily explained and so easily understood by humans then it might not even be worth putting your faith in and there's a there's a the supernatural divinity and they're like okay i'm just a person like i'm not i don't get this but when i die and I'm glorified, whatever, hopefully I'll understand it at that point. And maybe I still won't be able to understand it, but there's that, that is a, I think it's just a humbling aspect of the Christian, Christian faith that within even the very, I mean, the Trinity, the very nature of God, there's so many complexities and mysteries that it's like, we can't even begin to fathom it. We're, we're just understanding it on a kind of a human diagram that we've probably got, maybe not all the way right when we you know talk about the trinity in, in a lot of ways so it's a it's a real interesting thing and i well you were just kind of talking about we've talked about the symbolic meanings of, of these miracles and i kind of want uh to talk about could you explain the role of redemptive analogies in christ's miracles and especially as it relates to the literal understandings of jesus miracles and then symbolic understanding so i don't want to totally separate these things because they obviously overlap but you talk about this in the book as well yeah, that went by me a little too fast. So, redemptive analogy. Well, yeah, oh, so, yeah could you say say that again? Oh, c- could you just explain the role of? Uh, let's just start. With, could you explain the role of redemptive analogies in Christ's miracles? Oh yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's easy to do it by way of illustration. Great. So, the feeding of the five thousand mm-hmm. is a miracle. At the same time, it mm-hmm. sets up an analogy with Jesus, who is the bread of life. Right. And that's the way he redeems us, by mm-hmm. feeding us with his body and blood so that we have eternal life within us. Mm-hmm. So they, and over and over again, the miracles in the Gospels use, they set up and use analogies between a, a physical, visible level Mm-hmm. of action and the meaning of Jesus crucifixion and resurrection for sure so for that, sure. that's what I mean by a redemptive analogy yeah. is an analogy of that kind right so I, then I think that my my next question would be and I, I do you know who Jordan Peterson is that uh, I do yeah so he does yeah, he's, you know, he kind of does his series on the Bible and he talks a lot about the symbolic or uh, metaphoric uh, understandings of certain things in scriptures. He's talking about things very symbolically, which I get really frustrated with because he even talks about God symbolically, which I think is really, really horrible. And, and he doesn't take into consideration the fact that God is a person. He just considered God, he considers God to be, quote unquote, the future, the very psychological way of looking yeah, at things. Yeah. Um, but but I wonder because I want to. Obviously, you're saying there's like importance in the symbolic realities of the the symbolic analogy of Christ's miracles. I guess my question would be: How is the understanding of the symbolic reality and the literal reality of Christ's miracles beneficial to someone's faith? How how, how can why yeah. can't you separate them? You know, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, negatively. 
there are plenty of people who take half of the truth, <laughs> right? So either they say the physical healing or the physical stilling of the st storm, that's what happened. That's all there is. Mm. There's no particular extra meaning yeah. to it. Or they say there's all this extra meaning, but we don't really believe it happened. Hmm. <laughs> right? And and that's a place where the miracles and the parables are not equivalent because the parables are are made up stories. Yeah, the right. lost sheep, right? It doesn't matter whether there ever was a lost a hundred <laughs> sheep and one got lost. Right? That's not the point. And Jesus is not telling you, oh, I want to tell you about this poor lost sheep. <laughs> He's telling about poor lost sinners, and everybody understands that. So the parables are fictional, but they still have a good point to make. So God can use fiction in mm. order to make spiritual points. Mm. But we have to be fair to God and saying not forcing him to write fiction where what he's writing is nonfiction yeah. right, of things that happen. Or forcing the other way, right? Forcing him, everything has to be nonfiction. There's no room for poetry. There's no room for parables. There's no room for... <laughs> for uh, anything of that kind. It's up to God. Mm. You see, but how do I tell? Well, you tell by reading carefully, right? And asking <laughs> God to, to, to enable you to treat the material in the Bible fairly, right? To treat mm. as fiction, the parables which are fiction, and to treat as nonfiction what presents itself as nonfiction. Yeah. And you have scholars who spend their whole lives probing into this, but one of the difficulties is that scholars themselves can be just as biased as the ordinary guy, or even yeah. more biased <laughs> yeah. if they're convinced, for instance, that miracles don't happen. Oh, I'm a right. sophisticated modern guy. You know, I believe in modern science, blah, 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 right? <laughs> and I love science. You know, I have a scientific background, but science is about those regularities. We already talked about that. It doesn't, it can't possibly exclude the possibility that God is going to act differently if God is personal, right? So the, right. the real issue is what kind of God do you think exists and what kind of God do you worship, right? right? Because you can easily have a God who just is concerned about the physical, hmm. right? So there's no extra dimension, but that's kind of blah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or a God who is just interested in the spiritual so that none of these things really happened. And yeah. basically what's called liberal theology yeah, right. is an attempt to say, I'm going to accept all this propaganda. And that's what it is out of the modern world claiming that we're in a mechanistic world. Yeah. Right? Miracles are impossible. And I'm still going to preserve what I can out of Christianity. Well, Jay Gresham Machen, it's now the yeah. 100th anniversary of the book, Christianity and Liberalism, where he... He makes it clear these are two different religions. Yeah. Christianity, wow. genuine Christianity, biblical Christianity is the Christianity where God acts mm. and where he can do as he pleases and he can act contrary to people's expectations, contrary yeah. to everything a scientist has experienced his whole life. But that's a scientist. He's limited by his own humanity. Right. He can't leap out of his skin and tell God what he can and cannot do. It's just ridiculous when you think about it. <laughs> yeah. right? But it is a major issue, mm -hmm. I admit, because so much 
pressure is coming on Christians. There's so much of the world that has mm. adapted a view of essentially we're living in a mechanism. We're living in an impersonal universe. Mm. We're just we just happen to come up as as bags of molecules, right? Somehow out of the flotsam and jetsam of the past. Here we are. It's very depressing. <laughs> yeah. Well, have you, have you read the book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman? Uh, I have not, but I know I'm familiar with his context. And, yeah. yeah, you know, it's just it, it, there's always a story. This, this is one of the helpful things about that book. There's mm -hmm. a story of how we got where we are. And once you see the story, you see that it's flimsy as can be. Right. Yeah. There's oh, no for reason. sure. But I said, why you should believe this? It's just propaganda. <laughs> for sure, no, I hundred percent agree, and it's been interesting. And for me, like I'm growing up in the culmination of all this crazy philosophy because, like, you know, people my age literally don't know the difference between a man and a woman, and you know, I'm like, okay, that is some very basic stuff. But I was listening to an interview with Carl Truman uh, like a week ago, and he had kind of talked about how what was generally assumed in America as it related to biblical sexual ethics. Um, we, we, we all kind of assumed a Judeo-Christian ethic around sexuality for, for a long time. Now, there's people on the fringes who do weird stuff, but generally speaking, we all assumed that. And because we had assumed that for such a long time, a lot of Christians lost their ability to articulate the purpose, meaning, and reasoning for the biblical sexual ethic. And now we find ourselves years later in this broken, sexually broken down culture, and Christians are now unable to even explain why we have the sexual ethic that we do. It becomes an articulation problem for a lot of believers, not because, and then a lot of people, when they can't articulate it, they feel like, well, should I believe Those this? Are really, yeah. Those are really, yeah. water. Man, yeah, it's, well, yeah. what, what I am telling people in my own church is you have to start further back. You have to start with who God is and that he created the world. Yeah. And nothing else is going to make sense. You know, don't get into the sex stuff right away, right? <laughs> because people are all bent out of shape about that. Mm -hmm. But the real issue is way, way back there because they they don't know who God is. Yeah. They don't understand right. he's created the world. We're responsible to him. What he sets up as the way of life it's the only thing that makes sense. Right? For so sure. It's, a, it's just, you got to think as if, you know, I'm like a Martian in comparison with most Americans because they've absorbed all this stuff that, that is just out of touch with reality. Yeah. yeah. And, and so you got to start with what is reality, right? You mm -hmm. got to start back there with that. Now, people might not be convinced, right? But that's, you know, it's partly praying to the Holy Spirit, but it's also showing really people have got nothing to stand on because they're just relying on other people's ideas. Yeah. And, right. and we went through the sixties where one of the mottos was question authority. <laughs> where is that now? Where's anybody questioning all these claims of authority in the culture? Right. We need a lot of questioning authority <laughs> because it's, it's empty. Right. Right. They're, well, man, they're, they're questioning the wrong authority because I saw it last week. Yeah. I did. I did a. Was that last week? Recently, I did a podcast with Ken Ham, uh, uh, and he was talking about how about ten, seven to ten years ago they had written a book, and in that book they had looked at Gen Z and why less than nine percent of Gen Zers are going going to church now. So like nobody my age is even involved in the church, less than nine percent, and they're like they're wondering 
well, why is this? And a lot of churches will tell you the reason that Gen Zers are leaving the church is because they can't reconcile the scientific realities with the Christian realities. But they did a study. They, they uh, Ken Ham's team did a study and they asked him, well, why aren't you coming to church? And and these people, it had nothing to do with the reconciling of these two different things. It had to do with the inconsistencies within modern, I'll I'll say like modern, probably non-denominational evangelical churches, low church, whatever, in that there's been this emphasis on the integration of, for example, evolution with Genesis. And they'll say, well, you can integrate those two things. The word day doesn't mean day in, in Genesis anymore. It means whatever. But... You can't, so you can kind of usurp the authority of God in that section. But when God tells you you can't have sex with your girlfriend, you have to listen to him there. And so here Mm -hmm. you don't need to listen. And here you do need to listen. And a lot of young people were kind of just like, okay, like I'm not doing that. I'm out of here because they saw the inconsistencies. And I'm like, okay, I don't really blame them for that because the church should have somewhat of a backbone. But I found that to be really interesting because growing up my whole life, everybody was like, the reason all these young people leave the church is because they can't reconcile science with faith so that they started to create all these organizations reconciling science with faith and nothing has changed. People my age are still don't want anything to do with the Bible because they feel like they're being lied to by the, the church and rather than, you know, I just find that to be really interesting. I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or have, have seen yeah, any patterns yeah. or anything like that. Yeah, well, yeah, I think, I mean, we could talk a lot about that. I'm not sure I'm the wisest person to analyze the culture, but I think the Bible over and over again is our prime resource for analyzing culture. And, and, you know, because it gives us the truth and because it gives us an orientation Mm. to details, even that it doesn't directly discuss. Yeah. uh, You know, coming back to this physical and spiritual, mm-hmm. one of the things that, that I want to make about the miracles of Jesus was they really did happen. It's it's clear yeah. uh, in, from the Gospels, both in terms of what the modern reader naturally sees, that the, this is a claim about a real person and his real disciples and mm-hmm. real first century and Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, there are records, archaeological records this guy did exist. Yeah. There are coins mm, <laughs> with yeah. his inscription on them. So, you know, the, the reality of of the, the the claims of the Gospels, this really happened. That's evident to the modern reader, but it's evident the scholars, you know, evangelical scholars have defended this over and over again massively and saying oh, yeah. these are claims to being a nonfiction account. Yeah. But... The, the other thing about it is that that what we're presented in the Gospels is the means of, of communion with God through Christ. Yeah. So the spiritual dimension is right there in mm. the meaning of the events as God planned them. And the, that meaning, of course, is fully, more fully uh, explained in the letters of the New Testament because they look back and they you know, reflect a lot. And yeah. then we're headed to a new heaven and new earth that answers both the physical dimension and the dimension of the depth of communion with God, right? We right. shall see his face. Our names shall be on their foreheads. That's communion with God. 
the throne of God and of the Lamb and the river of life flowing from the throne. There's communion with God. And at the same time, the renewal of the physical, no disease, no death, no mourning yeah, and crying, right. right? New resurrection bodies. Mm. So you're not polarizing one against the other. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's going to be a problem then. So there are people reading the Gospels for whom it's all about if I have the right kind of faith, right. then I can live uh, disease-free and and rich, right. and be rich, right? right. It's so-called right. prosperity gospel, yeah. which is no gospel at all. Yeah. They want to have now what is promised in the consummation is the way I was describing. <laughs> We're going to get all that. Yeah. You've got to be patient. You've got to be willing to suffer with Christ. That's not a popular message. So yeah. on the one hand, people who are focused on the physical, who are focused on on getting things, and then people reading it on the spiritual level as communion with God, which is right, but are not seeing it is not undermining the physical level as if that were insignificant. Yeah. It's significant that this leper was actually yeah. healed. That's a yeah. wonderful thing. Right. It's a good thing. It's a restoration from something that went bad as a result of the, the fall and its effects. Yeah. There's, so, oh, so that's, but partly that fits right into, you know, the current issues of sexuality, not that we can answer all the details just out of that, but it's an orientation where you say mm -hmm. sex is something God created, right? It's a physical side of thing, but it's not uh, meaningless and it's not trivial and it's not just plumbing as some people crassly say, Yeah, but it has spiritual depth to it. And of course, yeah. the marriage of Christ and the church is, is where that goes. Yeah. So that you have a both and kind of thing. Nobody has that out in the world, right? No. Yeah. Uh, the Christi I mean, we have the answers in a fundamental sense. And I believe there's hope, even for a culture uh, like ours, and, you know, oh, yeah. the broader culture of Europe, there's hope. Because these, these false answers don't work. They're just in tatters. Mm -hmm. And and uh, so, you know, we we got to pray, though, because people won't wake up just because they are um, smarter. Oh, for sure. <laughs> right. They, it's a spiritual issue. of yeah. Are you willing to give up your desire to be your little tin God? That's right. Right, 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 right. Well, there. The kind of, yeah, that, that is a dynamic, the, dy the spiritual and physical dynamic. That's really, um, it's a hard thing to, to wrap your head around. As I even think about it, as you're talking about, about it, there is a quote, and I'm going to probably botch this a little bit by C.S. Lewis. Uh, it, it's, it's, he says something along the lines of, um, we're not bodies with souls. We're souls with bodies, uh, mm -hmm. which is which is interesting, you know, because you think of yourself. Okay, I can see my body and stuff like that. Then the soul seems like the less tangible, less real thing to us as human beings because we we can't see it. Um, and I wonder if kind of what you're saying about the relationship between the physical and the spiritual, uh, and and as I see Jesus uh, discussing things in the Gospels, and he talks about. He says, you know, I say to you, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. I say, if you've, you hate your brother, you've committed murder. Um, I'm wondering if there's even, I, I'm not trying to pit them up against each other, but I'm wondering if there's even a higher significance to the spiritual reality um, 
then I know Jesus is trying to maybe make a point that what happens physically is an implication of what's happening spiritually. And so to, to see properly physically, you have to see properly spiritually. Um, but it can't happen the other way around, right? Or, or is that, am I getting that right? Yeah. Well, it's definitely the case, the Sermon on the Mount, and later when he talks about defilement and, and um, unclean foods. In both cases, he's pointing to the centrality of the heart, right? From within a man, from his heart come evil thoughts, adultery, you know, and all that. That's what defiles a man. I'm thinking of that uh, passage. It's from Matthew 17, I believe. Hmm. So, so the, you know, the real you is not molecules. Hmm. Molecules are in your service, right? Yeah. You are a person. Right. And that's the exceedingly important because, again, the world around us is telling you we're accidents of yeah. the random motions of molecules, you know, and bumping and into each other. Of, and, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that it's not true. We are mm. people and we can have personal communion with God who is personal and mm. who designed us for that communion. And that's. You know, people are going to, as Augustine famously said, right, we're restless until we find our rest in you. And that's just as true today, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of terribly restless people, lonely people, frustrated yeah. people, people seeking fulfillment in all the wrong places. And mm -hmm. um, But God, God has an open invitation in grace, right? There is a way. Right. But it's this exclusive way, and that yeah. that's offensive too. Yeah. Right? Because we want to be people are constructing their own religions, a piece here, piece there. Well, really, they're God, right? They're they're in charge. That's what they're trying to do. Yeah. To, huh. to construct a religion of what pleases them. But in deep down they know it's just a fake. They're just constructing it. <laughs> right. 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 So it's just it's not gonna work. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And I, there's, so maybe this could, we could maybe wrap up with this question that I, as you kind of, in your book, you talked about the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. Um, and then the connection that you make to Isaiah 25, six, uh, which I should have written Isaiah 25, six, six down because uh, maybe it'd be helpful for context. But um, do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know what section I'm I talking do, about? I do, right. And uh, yeah. The miracle of of water into wine is a favorite of mine, hmm. partly because it, it's called a sign, and yet it's not so evident what's a sign of. <laughs> right, right. And, and it's not as fully explained as some of the others, so that people can take it, oh, yeah, it's just showing that, you know, that he had miraculous powers. Right. Well, yeah, it does show that. But, but Isaiah 25 as this verse you referred to, verse 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. That's interesting, too, because it's been focused on the people of Israel. Mm -hmm. And now for all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of mm -hmm. rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, Right, their own blindness yeah. to to uh, commune with God, the veil 
that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. Hmm. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. So you're really talking about the consummation, right? That's where death is swallowed up forever. Okay. But, but when you come to that wedding feast, it is a feast. Hmm. And Jesus provides wine but there's this interesting dialogue with his mother, mm-hmm. right? His mother, how she knows it, because I don't think he'd done miracles up to that point. But he'd been a very responsible <laughs> um, son. <laughs> we can be sure of that. <laughs> so he'll think of something. So, you know, they have no wine, right? She says. And he says to her, this thing that looks on the surface to be totally off the wall, uh, it, woman, what have you to do with me? My hour is not yet come. Yeah. What is that? It's with like if I called my mom woman too, I mean, I think about how like, yeah, I'm like, too. dude, come on. But that too. But, but my hour is not yet come. What yeah, hour? When sure. you read through the whole gospel of John, it's the hour of his crucifixion and resurrection. Yeah, yeah, right. So I think what he's saying is the time is coming when it would be appropriate for you Mm. to ask me to provide the wine of the feast, because Mm. that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. (laughs) It's my own body and blood. It's going to be the feast. Yeah. That's what's going to happen. But in the meantime, he is gracious, right, to, Mm -hmm. to do something which is a sign. And it's contrasted, I think, also. With the water purification, the the wine, the, the, they fill these jars. They're jars. It's specifically said for purification. Well, that's pointing backward to the purifying rites of the Old Testament. And John the Baptist, who is just preceding him and who is baptized with water, mm-hmm. right? Well, with baptism with water is that water have some special power? That's mm-hmm. not that. It's a, it's a water that's pointing to something, right? Namely, to repentance, right? To yeah, right. To renewal. And now this is the time of renewal. This is the time of the feast. This is the time of the marriage. And the ultimate marriage is the marriage between Christ and the church. So there are all kinds of things going on in there uh, that are more than just saying, oh, well, this is a miracle. Yeah, it's a miracle, but it's symbolic, I believe, of the fact Jesus is going to provide the ultimate feast. And Isaiah 25 prophesies it, but then you see it actually taking place in the marriage supper of the Lamb and Revelation. But the foundation for that marriage supper of the Lamb is laid in the crucifixion and the resurrection. Yeah. And because, because out of this his side come blood and water. Right? right. Well, that literally happened. Again, it's just literal and yeah, right. symbolic meaning. But there, that's the point at which he provides for the the nourishment of eternal life for his people. Yeah. Yeah, do, is there any connection to communion at all there? I wonder. Oh, yeah. I do think so, but it's indirect, right? We okay. do not believe that that the Lord's supper is magic. Right? And neither even actually the Roman Catholics have some mistakes, but neither do they believe that it's magic that uh, that no matter what your sins or whatever, it just is, uh, you know, it's like a magic potion, right? It's not magic. It's a sign, hmm. right? What is it a sign of? Of communion with Christ, right? So you can experience the reality of eating 
Christ's flesh and drinking his blood every time you have the Lord's Supper. Well, even when you, you don't and you just read the Bible, you can experience it. But the Lord's Supper is a more vivid picture right. that reinforces it. And the communion is real, but it's not because you're just eating physical elements, mm. but because you believe, right? Right. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. There's yeah. the purpose of the whole Gospel of John. And and it, it it includes this miracle of the water turned into wine. Yeah, There's your picture. You believe that Christ is the one to provide the wine of eternal life right. and the feasting of communion with God, which mm -hmm. goes on forever. I mean, that's... that's uh, mind-boggling, but also renewing. I mean, yeah. just the people who are discouraged, people who are feel themselves caught in sins, to to understand the glory of Jesus Christ, to understand his victory over death. It it's, uh, can transform you. Yeah. Yeah. I think about, I was actually reading this yesterday, first Corinthians, uh, as it, the instructions for the Lord's supper, first Corinthians 11, first Corinthians 11, um, you know, and you kind of talked about it. Well, you know, communion is not magic. It doesn't do the job of repentance or forgiveness. It's, it's symbolic. Um, the, it even says in first Corinthians that we should examine ourselves or some versions say we should judge ourselves, that there's some sort of call to repentance prior to taking communion. And then Paul says, it's like, like, it's kind of crazy. He's like, this is why some of you are sick and have died because you haven't examined yourself. Um, and it's something that, you know, growing up in, in evangelical non-denominational churches, I think that there hasn't been as as much of a uh, recognition or as much significance on repentance before taking communion. Uh, I haven't, mm -hmm. at least I haven't felt that. And it's been somewhat frustrating. Um, and it's made me start to think about the different ways of looking at communion. Like I'm, and I'm not going to become like a Catholic or anything like that, but I think that in some ways the Catholics uh, and maybe some more high church people will, will, they do communion in a way that seems more significant because of the structure around it. Whereas low church evangelicals seem a little bit more flippant about it. And I think that it's just uh, it's something I've just been thinking about. I'm not, I haven't really landed anywhere on it, but I, th I really was thinking about that when I was reading your book and, and they met, you had that connection between Isaiah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and the, the, um, the feeding of 5,000 and Jesus bread of life, there's all kinds of resonances with the Lord's supper. Yeah. And, but, but what he says there is that um, he who eats my flesh and yeah. drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. So we, that must be talking about real communion. It's not a mere physical act of partaking the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Because nobody believes that that's a guarantee that you'll be raised up at the last day to, in the sense of eternal life. Uh, so it's the, the, it's the, it's what the Lord's Supper points to, mm. right? Of namely a spiritual communion with Jesus. Yeah. It is in view. But of course, the Lord's Supper as a pointer is an opportunity to participate in that very thing. For sure. For right. Sure. So it's given an enormous significance, though subordinate. It's not merely the outward. Yeah. 
process, but yeah. but as a sign and as a, a, a promise from Jesus. So you could. It's a window and it's a doorway into communion with God. And so I would say, you know, I think we have to be careful because uh, the Roman Catholic Church, in my view, has serious errors yeah, right. in its understanding of the Lord's Supper. Right. But I do understand what you're saying, that that um, there needs to be an understanding of the weight of this ceremony because we are in the presence of Jesus. Mm, mm-hmm. And uh, he is inviting us to have spiritual communion with him. So it's not something... You just go through to get it over with, kind of. <laughs> For sure. And, and I'm, so, you know, reading so, this. So, yeah. So, <clears throat> so I wish, I wish to have uh, the, the both hand, right? Uh, yeah. The a true doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Uncorrupted by superstition. Mm. And a true participation, which nourishes us spiritually. Right, mm. where we we meet Christ not because of magic powers of the elements themselves, but because we're participating in a community that through the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God and through the symbolism of the elements mm. is invited into the presence of Jesus. So, mm. so there's a true doctrine and true communion, yeah. both, and. Uh, you, you know the church can can do that. My wife and I yeah. have been in some good churches where we see that happening. Uh, it may be discouraging for people who feel there are so many problems, but no church is perfect, right? No, there's, right, right. There's even this joke: if you find a perfect church, don't join it because <laughs> it'll no longer be perfect. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, no, and I and I want to tell people, I like I understand the implications of transubstantiation i uh you know i'm reading this book uh roman catholic theology and practice and evangelical assessment by greg allison i've read through it a couple times and he talks about the nature grace continuum and how that that really somebody's theological perspective on communion has has a lot of implications on it tells you what they think about nature and grace and sin's corruption of grace and things like that. And there's a lot there. It's, I mean, it opens up a whole can of worms. So I'm not trying to be flippant with any of those statements. I'm just trying to figure it out. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, okay. Well, I mean, look, we like, we're like an hour and a half into this. I, I do. Um, there's so much, I mean that we barely even touched the scratch the surface. There's so much in this book and I would just, encourage people to go buy the book and read it. There's so much we can learn from about uh, miracles from Jesus's miracles and, um, and things that we can, can use in our own ministries and our own uh, preaching of the gospel and our own um, showing of of Christ. Uh, Vern, I I guess, do you have any concluding thoughts, final things you want to encourage people with before we uh, end this interview? Mm, Yes. Uh, The key that I would come back to is, that the miracles of Jesus are miracles of Jesus, mm-hmm. right? And so their meaning is related to the whole meaning of Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. And so we read the miracles, we read things that really happen, but also that tell us mm. uh, about, well, sure, the nature of Christ, who is God and man, but also what he's done. Mm. 
right? And that accomplishment of redemption is depicted uh, beforehand by analogy in the miracles. So if, I hope that people uh, using the book will increase in their ability to appreciate the depth of the meaning of Jesus and his work because of it. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, even... It affected me in that way that they, as you explained, how they all point to the to the death, resurrection of Christ, and how how that's how one of the ways in which we should view these miracles. So, Verna, I do really appreciate you coming on and doing this podcast. Um, I mean, a lot of your time, I took up a lot of your time, but I think it's going to be really beneficial and people will learn a lot from it. So thanks so much for doing this. Um, mm. For those of you listening, make sure you like, subscribe, share this with your friends. Give us a five-star rating and leave us a review, and we will see you guys in the next one. Goodbye.